Let's, <clears throat> let's start with prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you again for bringing us here. Thank you for going through the day with us. And Lord, <clears throat> you know, of course, we don't, what each of us have maybe faced today and gone through. I'm just grateful that you got us here and pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, last week we got started fairly well into um, what's really the Swiss Reformation, and that includes John Calvin. But I think I didn't do justice to a parallel. A lot of these are simultaneous. I mentioned the Anabaptists, but I didn't say too much about them. And that's, um, so I want to try to maybe backtrack just a little bit, deal with them, then move on and finish what was going on right at the same time, which was John Calvin and so forth. Um, <clears throat> the Anabaptists, were the, they're often called the radical reformers. They didn't think Martin Luther and people like that went far enough. And they were for just wrecking the whole place, okay? Um, it's interesting that whether it is religious or political or whatever it is, whenever there's a revolution, an upheaval, an overthrow of authority, things always splinter, and you end up with people who um, didn't go very far. You have some that are in the middle, and you've usually got a group out here that are just nuts. And their, their, <clears throat> their first question or their first answer is burnt to the ground. Well, the Anabaptists could be looked at as radical um, and went too far, okay? The reason I want to spend a little more time on them is America, United States, is or was and is heavily impacted by the Anabaptists, okay? Um, so... <clears throat> and I'm prejudiced, and I'll unveil some of my prejudices as we go through this tonight. But it's not been necessarily good, the impact that they've had on us. Um, to jump way ahead, part of the reason they're over here is because they were nuts. And so m nobody wanted them over there. <laughs> So they got on boats and came over here. Um, <clears throat> and in some ways, many illegitimate, okay? But in some ways, some of the persecution that they got on the continent and in England was somewhat deserved because they just were unhinged. Um, now, <clears throat> just a reminder, that the, the Anabaptists got going in Zurich, um, in the 1520s, <clears throat> so it was pretty early in the uh, Reformation. And there were three or four guys, you don't really need to know their names, um, that 
were um, kind of the ringleaders of what became the Anabaptists. Um, <clears throat> in Zurich, the Reformation had already taken hold so strongly that the city council of Zurich voted that all children had to be baptized, um, infant baptized within, I think it was some weeks of their birth. Or you, you and the whole family were exiled. I mean, you kicked out of town. Okay? So here, here's how close, as I mentioned this before, how close city and, and or, or, you know, state and, and church were. Okay? Um, <clears throat> these guys, um, a guy, Grable, Manns, and... Um, some other guy started with a B. Uh, anyway, they refused to do this, uh, thinking it was a Catholic, um, you know, came from Catholicism. So, <clears throat> in fact, they ended up meeting together in some house, somebody's house, um, one of these three guys, and they baptized each other, okay? And they were thus called re-baptizers and that meant they re-baptized people who had previously been baptized as infants and they baptized them as adults only upon their confession of faith they, they, they testified I am a believer so they believed the, the shift then was they didn't believe in infant baptism they only believed in adult baptism Okay, <clears throat> now, I think I've already gone over some of this, so I don't want to spend, bore you here. Um, the sacraments, let's put it this way. In those days, the sacraments meant more than they were intended to mean. Today, they mean less than they were intended to mean, I think. So we have a hard time understanding why it's a big deal. Um, but baptism, and even more so, communion, um, was you're just coming out of a, at least a thousand years plus belief that those are, those are saving. That's how you're saved. Faith doesn't play a part in it. You, they didn't really think about that. You just, it's done. Every child is baptized as an infant, and uh, even to this day, it's remarkable all through much of Europe. I know through wars, things were destroyed. But there's an incredible amount of preserved ancient church records. And those church records were the same thing as having a state birth certificate. I mean, again, church and state, there was no difference. There were one. So... Um, Today, if you're doing research centuries ago, uh, the churches and their baptismal roles are the birth records um, because there was only, you know, a few days, and it was called christening. That's when you gave them their Christian name um, and baptized them. Um, another thing that that did, what it, it, was, it was automatic that that child and the parents who were themselves baptized, infant baptized, were automatically a part of the church in that particular province or country or whatever. Um, 
and everything was pretty wisely um, drawn up in parishes. Now, it's interesting that Louisiana, which has an ancient history of hardcore Catholicism, they still use the word parish for instead of county. Um, and that's Europe under Catholicism. Um, so you had the parish um, priests. You may, have, you may have some chapels. You, if it's a big enough area, you're going to have a cathedral. Um, <clears throat> but you're automatically a part of the church. It's just a given. And you're in the church by being infant baptized. Okay? So, anyway, they rebelled against infant baptism, and um, they began to they 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 kind of began to figure out some basic doctrines that they believed. Along with, meanwhile, you have Martin Luther still living; he's writing stuff everywhere, and you've got Zwingli also in in Switzerland. You've got um, Calvin in Geneva. And so you got other names all over the place. So it, it's a, um, it's like a zoo of writings, teachings, preachings, arguing back and forth with other reformers. Um, the Anabaptists became bitter enemies of Lutheranism and of uh, Calvin and Calvinism because they didn't think they went near far enough. They should have been way more radical. Um, here's some of the things, though, that they... <clears throat> um, here's a fundamental way <clears throat> that they thought, and then this will lead into um, some of their doctrines. Luther took this position. I want to rid the church. Of course, he never wanted to get thrown out of the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it from within. But Luther said, I want to throw out of the church everything that the Bible condemns. Okay? The Anabaptists took the position, we will only include in our beliefs what the Bible commands. So it's a... It's a separate way of thinking. So Luther would leave a lot of things intact as far as tradition and so forth. He didn't get too worked up about it unless the Bible specifically spoke against it, like the priest being able to forgive a person their sins. Only God does. So he throw it out. Um, the Pope, throw it out. Um, but the Anabaptists <clears throat> were backwards to Luther. It doesn't get in unless the Bible says it has to be in. So, uh, obviously, the Anabaptists had a lot shorter um, couple pages of what they believed. <laughs> okay. um, <clears throat> and one of the things they believed, and, and they, began, they began to get a little wacky, but a um, <clears throat> couple things. They were radical in having nothing to do with the government. Nothing. That included no Anabaptist was to ever be involved <clears throat> in any kind of political office. Even, you know, if you were the rat killer in the village, 
Don't do it. If you're an Anabaptist, you have nothing to do with it. Um, you don't ever run to be, you know, Burgermeister, which is the mayor. You, you state you have nothing to do with any of it. Okay? Um, further, total pacifists did not believe in war, uh, would not bear arms. Now, here's how, you, here's how I want you to think um, about this. The biggest threat, listen, in that day, there's just wars everywhere. I mean, everybody is fighting somebody, okay? You've got petty little stuff. You've, got, you've just got um, all the, for then, the normal upheavals in society. Then you have, to them, the most mortal threat they could possibly have and that was the Turks or Muslims, okay? The Muslims had swept clear in, in 750. They'd crossed over Gibraltar. They'd, they had just ravaged all of North uh, Africa, wiped out Christianity totally from the Sahara up to the Mediterranean, all Muslim. Jumped over Gibraltar, went into Spain and Portugal, and got clear into France before they were stopped. In the meantime, Muslims were coming up out of the Arabian Peninsula and coming up through Palestine, Syria, turning the corner where Turkey is today, and got all the way to Istanbul. Okay, so it was a big pincer movement, and it got stopped there, but they were uh, desperate threat to society. So, um, <clears throat> it'd almost be like after Pearl Harbor, you, you become a conscientious objector and you won't, you won't fight. You understand what I mean? In the little villages and the little farming communities in America where the telegraph kid keeps writes, writes down with the telegraph, we regret to tell you, I'm telling you what. Um, the neighbor kid who's hanging around working on his car but he's a conscientious objector, do you understand what I mean? Anabaptists fell under that kind of suspicion because, no, we, we won't fight when all those countries and peoples f felt that they were under the worst threat they'd ever been under from the Muslims, okay? So that didn't curry um, any favor. Um, let's see. <clears throat> they were even against taking oaths. Now, we still have, we recognize some things even in America today of people who have a conviction against taking an oath, in, in court, you know, hand on the Bible, so help me God, They're, they will let you, I don't know what they'll let you say, but, you know, you can do something where you just say, I'll tell the truth, or whatever. Um, they even believed they got into, because they couldn't, they said, they couldn't find any place in the New Testament. The Anabaptists were like everybody else who always claims this. We want to get back to the New Testament, the original church, okay? Well, there's a lot we don't know about the original church, but they thought they did. And they couldn't find any place there uh, where music was commanded or prescribed in the New Testament for Christian worship. 
That's absurd. Um, Jesus and the disciples said, sang a hymn on the night that um, he was crucified. Well, after the supper and they went to Gethsemane. Except their argument, yep, that was still under Judaism. But in the Christian church, uh, never mind the fact, you know, that Paul said, uh, singing hymns and spiritual songs and so forth. Um, if it isn't spelled out in black and white, then we don't do it. So no, no singing, no congregational singing or instruments of music um, in, <clears throat> in their worship. Uh, let's see here, a couple more um, things. That's probably good enough for now. Um, Total separation between church and state. You have nothing to do, nothing to do with it um, at all. Now, um, <clears throat> they ended up pretty severely persecuted. Unfortunately, you had Lutherans and Protestants, new Protestants who broke away from Catholics. They burned as many Anabaptists at the stake as the Catholics did. Okay? Um, so those were, you know, <clears throat> fun days. Um, <clears throat> now, it's estimated that um, in these, in the 1520s, 25 and through there, as many in Germany, Switzerland, um, some France, that there were as many as four to 5,000 um, Anabaptists that were executed, either burned at the stake or beheaded or, you know, whatever. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> um, the problem with the Anabaptists, many of them, was the radical wing of Anabaptism took over and outnumbered the sort of middle of the rotors. And they began to, um, this is something that always happens in these kinds of situations. When... Um, there's chaos and tumult and persecution or whatever. There's always, it's almost a knee-jerk thing. These are the last days. Second coming is just around the corner. <clears throat> well, um, I'll give you one case, and there were a bunch of them, but I'll give you one case. Um, in the German city of Strasbourg, um, a lot of Anabaptists gathered. <clears throat> and they had this idea, wherever they were at, what city it was or whatever, they wanted to try to turn it into a new Jerusalem. I mean, they were really radical about getting back to the original church. <clears throat> so they tried this in Strasbourg, and it didn't get as, as much traction as they would have liked. So there, were, there was a nearby city in Germany, Munster, or Munster, okay? It had a city council that was sort of inclined towards and friendly towards Anabaptists, okay? So... It seemed a logical place to go. They're kind of persecuted wherever they're at. Let's move to Munster, okay? Now, there was a guy by the name of Hoffman um, that was kind of spearheading this move 
to Munster. And I think he ended up getting elected a mayor. So I, I'm, that I'm not positive about. But anyway, this Hoffman goes there. Um, and as persecution rises against Anabaptists, lots of them start heading for, uh, even people from as far away as Holland, start heading to Munster. <clears throat> well, um, he had a couple of guys. Both of them, their first names were John. One of them was John something, uh, Myers or something. And the other one was called John of Leiden. And that's, uh, Leiden is a city in Holland, where he was from. So, um, I can't remember what, Hoffman, I think Hoffman got, somebody killed him or something. He was assassinated. Yeah, he was, I think he was mayor or whatever. Someone bumped him off. And so you end up, these two Johns are left, okay? And now they become in charge of the, the whole town, which they had enough Anabaptists in the town, the city, and of course they had walls and all this. They got the, the Catholic bishop and most of the Catholics, and they threw them out of town. Okay. Well, the bishop and the Catholics didn't go anywhere. They armed themselves and then tried to retake the city, and they ended up kind of doing a siege. Um, well, as they began to get hungry, and as some people were, one of the Johns believed that God has appeared to him, and one of these two guys that are still left leading because Hoffman's dead, um, and he... They also had some wacky ideas about the Bible. That the Bible was kind of, it's a really great book, but it's still, God is still giving revelations. He's still adding to the Bible. And that their visions, their dreams, their so-called appearances of God to them equaled what was in the Scripture. Okay, so you see how they're, they're, they're getting out here. Well, this guy, John, whatever, um, he had this vision that he was Gideon, okay? And that God wanted him to go with just a bare minimum of soldiers. Now, he didn't, I don't know if he, I'm assuming he know, knew that Gideon had 300. Well, he must have not had that many or decided he'd go with 10%, so he only took 30. So he takes 30 soldiers, but God was gonna give him victory just like Gideon. And he goes out, Side the city gates and attacks the bishop and the army that the bishop had put together, and they all got slaughtered. Okay, so now you got one guy left, this John of Leiden, and they're hunkered down in the city, and he makes this. Oh, I, you know, I got one little thing I got to remember, remind you this Hoffman that I mentioned earlier, he prophesied that if he was thrown in prison, that within six months, six months after he would be imprisoned, Christ would return. So lo and behold, who knows if he provoked or whatever, he gets thrown in jail, and he's the mayor or whatever. Well, they ended up beheading him. But so people then, boy, they were running the streets crazy because he's in jail, he prophesied it, he's a prophet, this is it. Christ is coming again. Meanwhile, this, the one John guy goes out and gets himself killed with the Catholics. And Hoffman gets killed. 
And so the remaining John claims that the end times are so near and enough men had died in some of the fighting that was going on that there were approximately three women to every man in the city of Munster, okay? Well, he got, this John of Leiden, he got a vision that um, they should get back to Old Testament times, and Old Testament times had polygamy. So he commanded, I mean, it wasn't advice, he commanded that um, everyone every one of the men should marry enough women to, that every woman had to have a husband, okay? Now, to help things out, he took some extra, you know, he loaded up a little more, and he had 16, okay? Um, might as well enjoy the last days. Uh, but at any rate, it got so nutty um, that they were they decided that everything, they had visions, everything's to be communal. All property, you know, wives, everything was communal. It just got insane, okay? So, finally, the bishop, who's still outside the gates with his army, batters in the gate uh, the, and attacks the city and just slaughtered a whole bunch of them. Especially, they got this the second John, okay? And I don't know what they, they tortured him, they did all kinds of stuff to him, and I can't remember if they, I don't think they burned him at the stake, I can't remember how they killed him. But at any rate, they put him in a cage, and they ran the cage, I mean, they, they had block and tackle or something, they ran the cage clear to the pinnacle of the cathedral in the city, which the cathedrals would be 100 feet high. I mean, it was just, you know, um, massive structures. And so they rigged a cast iron cage and put him up there where he died, okay? Later, I don't know how long, they took the, they, they got the bones out of the cage, okay? But the cages are still there. Stephen, our son, who did a lot of studying in Germany, um, and teaches German and Eastern European history, I've seen pictures of it, of those cages still hung by chains way up there on the main spire um, at the front of the church. So um, that was a real black eye, major black eye, on the Anabaptist movement some moderate Anabaptists who had been kind of overshadowed by the wackos um, kind of corralled what was left of the Anabaptist movement. And among them were guys um, like Menno Simons who founded the Mennonite uh, church, the Amish and all those that offspring um, there. And there were a whole bunch, well, the Quakers, uh, at least their roots are there in the Anabaptist movement, but a huge number of the, all these little Baptist groups um, 
that believed in believer baptism was kind of their big thing. No infant baptism, no rituals, no hierarchy. They believed in preachers, pastors um, that were called, but it was total congregational government, which was radical back then. I mean, democracy was unheard of. And so um, they were, most of them, driven to places in Europe where you may have a nobleman or somebody who, you know, owned the whole half the province would house and protect Anabaptists. Or a lot of them fled to um, Holland and then ended up going across the channel and going to England. And then a lot of them immigrated from England to North America, um, to the U.S., Okay, that's why, partly, we have, I don't know, it continues to multiply, but there's at least 50 or 60, or maybe more, separate Baptist denominations in the United States. Um, a vast majority of them are just, um, how can I say it, they're just virulently independent. Um, and... And there's a sense, now, now I'm, I'm painting with too uh, wide of a brush, but the same kind of our way or the highway that typified the Anabaptists clear back in Europe, in many cases, still typifies a lot of these smaller, very independent, even from each other. I mean, they don't have, each, they don't have anything to do with other Baptist churches that are blocked down the, down the street. Um, when... Um, my oldest son, Jonathan, um, got out of seminary. He went to Tuscaloosa and was a college pastor there at a church and worked on the campus of uh, Alabama. Um, and so Stephen, our other son, when he got out of his undergrad, he went to share an apartment with Jonathan, and he got his master's before he went on and got his doctorate. He got his master's at Alabama. So... They were living in this apartment, and um, they were there a couple years, and we went down several times to visit them. Well, I would go, you know, I'd run um, in the neighborhood. Um, you know, there were 57 churches per block, okay? Um, and that's probably a low count. Every last one of them virtually were either no music, dunk you till you're almost drowned Church of Christ or something Baptist. And there was one that I always would run by, pretty big sign, um, such and such Baptist. Independent, non-denominational, King James only. You know, they're just a whole list of stuff. Really welcoming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Made you just want to go there. Um, and every time I'd run by there, I'd, I, I would kind of think of, that's what, the DNA is still there. You ain't telling me nothing. You know, that's kind of the attitude. Don't try to tell me. Um, very, um, you know, won't do anything cooperatively. If some of those kinds of churches, too, by the way, um, that would just, I can remember reading stuff, years ago when I first got in the pastorate 
they would just absolutely skin and fillet and field dress um, Billy Graham and people like that because they weren't, you know, whatever that particular Baptist group thought you ought to be. That typifies the Anabaptists. And they've had a huge influence in what I would call e, small e, evangelicalism in the United States. Um, lots of denominations, including the, um, the one that we were up until two years ago and the one I spent my whole life in, were out of the Methodist roots. And there was a pretty strong central government, which never killed anybody. Um, and you have a book of discipline, and you abide by that, and you have a superintendent, and you might have a bishop over him. Um, and there were, you know, there was structure to it. Um, that was another thing that the Anabaptists, and even to this day, their, their descendants, just, they, they just turn into Comanches when, it, when you talk about structure and rules and a book of discipline and, here's, and government. It's, you know, you're not telling me what to do. Um, that's an ancient trait that typified the whole radical wing of the Reformation. They would, they would savage John Calvin and Martin Luther. Martin Luther's going to hell because he didn't go far enough. Um, so they were, they were a, a difficult bunch to deal with. And again, I, I not obviously, I'm not condoning burning them at the stake, but you can see why they were chased from one place to another because they were just crossways. Um, anyway, <clears throat> now, That's probably enough on some of that. Um, but but uh, what I wanted to point out to you is how, how really um, relevant Anabaptism is, especially in America. In fact, I think America, would, without question, there's virtually not a trace of Anabaptism or even Jesus in Europe, uh, England today. But there's lots of uh, traces of Anabaptism here in America. And so a lot of them ended up, you know, coming here to escape persecution over there. Now, um, any fast questions, thoughts before we, I'm going to shift back and, and uh, finish up with, with Calvin and what's called capital R, the Reformed theology versus Lutheran theology. Uh, Calvin and Luther had some nasty, you know, they weren't exactly contemporaries. Um, um, Calvin died in 1564. Luther died in 1546. Um, but when they were both you know, writing and so forth, they, were, they didn't believe, they didn't agree on communion and some things and and again that was a huge deal to them and so they had some real real differences um, because of Luther's thing if it's not absolutely forbidden in scripture just leave it alone um, they felt he didn't 
throw enough Catholicism overboard. Um, even, you know, the hierarchy of clergy, having local parish priests and then having like a bishop and then an archbishop and any problem with that, you know. Um, but they were just adamant against anything like that. And so there were a lot of, a lot of disagreements, yeah. I was just curious if, like, and this, you might not be able to answer this, but there's so many different denominations of Baptist church, which I don't know a lot about, but, um, like, could you just show up to one of their churches and go to church, or do you, do you have to <coughs> come in by inviting you? You mean today, or, oh, <coughs> generally, no. Um, you can, you know, it's open, but um, it's, especially if you are like a lot that are, say, King James only Bible, things like that, um, you, I doubt that they'll, you know, chase you to your car with a 12-gauge, but they'll make it really clear that you toe the line or you're not you're you're not going to get on any committee you're not going to join you're not you know so yeah i was looking for a church to go to in fort collins i think and i pulled up to a baptist church and i don't know if they had just gotten out or were just going in but like i felt like the whole congregation was like staring at me and wondering why i was there or whatever so it could have just been something about you you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah i Um, anyway, um, every church, here's another thing that's too bad, but especially today, I'm exaggerating a little. It doesn't make any difference what the sign out in front of your church says. You have no idea what in the world they believe, you know? That's tragic um, because everybody does, every man doeth that which was right in his own eyes. Preachers preach, I don't care what the discipline says or what the state of doctrine is. If I don't believe it, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Um, I've, I've been in a situation to fight that my whole life and it's always been, I, I never have figured it out. Um, I wouldn't go become a, Catholic, and then fight them on praying to Mary. I don't believe in praying to Mary. I'm just not going to bother with them. But I'm not going to go try to become a priest and then be a burr under their saddle about praying to the saints and <laughs> leave them alone. Um, and it's but it's but it's an it's everywhere. Those of us churches that believe um, that are out of the Methodist roots. I hate to even say the word Methodist, which grieves my heart because of how far down the road they become. But, um, or like I've said to guys before, you're, you know, you're a Calvinist. You're, you're from a Baptist background. Why do you come join us and then fight us on eternal security and tell us, well, you can't back, you know, I don't believe you can back. Okay, go be a Baptist. Fine. Leave us alone. I don't go join the Baptists, get on their board of ministry, and then fight them on eternal security. I just don't fool the Baptists. 
Um, I've never understood that. Why people will um, want to become a, you know, a part of some organization that they don't agree with. But anyway. Um, now, meanwhile, Calvin is in Switzerland too. And in the Swiss, he's French, however. He came, um, was educated as a lawyer um, near Paris. But he comes to, um, well, he ends up in Geneva. And he was, <clears throat> let's see, when, let, let me look at my notes here for a second, which wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, in 1530, um, 1536, he was invited by the city council of Geneva, Switzerland, to come and be um, kind of the main professor of theology, okay? Again, see how close church state is. Um, so he prepared, at the direction of the city council, a statement of confession of faith, educational program, moral standards, um, and all of these had to be met to become a citizen of Geneva. All the stuff Calvin said, you must, can't do this, can't do that, you must believe this, must believe that, and you couldn't even become a secular citizen of Geneva unless you signed on to this whole statement um, of belief. Now, <clears throat> he got into a wrangle with the, the state or the city council over who had the power to excommunicate people from the church, kick people out of the church. Was it the church or was it the city council? Um, that's just crazy to us. But that was the situation. So the city council then, I think two or three years later, they uninvited him and kicked him out of Geneva. Okay. Then it was, what was it here? Well, it was, yeah, 1538, they ordered him to leave. 1541, um, they invited him back, and he never left. And Geneva became basically run by John Calvin and the pastors. Um, they gained more power so that they were, it was a religious state, uh, technically. Um, now, <clears throat> I mentioned last week, um, started on Calvin's teachings. There were some things that he was not far from Luther on. Luther, or, or maybe we could say it the other way, Luther wasn't too far from Calvin on the matter of um, predestination. Uh, Luther wasn't quite where Calvin was, but Luther was pretty... Um, Luther did what a lot of people do. <clears throat> um, tailored his theology, he could almost not help it, but tailored his theology to his own experience. And he spent so much time in the monastery beating himself for his sins and an overwhelming sense of guilt and everything else. Um, and he was, a very, um, he was a very dark, depressed, extremely pessimistic person. Um, and that affected his theology. And so he was, he, he was so um, marvelously converted, studying Romans when he saw the just shall live by faith, that 
his own experience caused him to almost assume God just overwhelmingly saved me without my will. And so it wasn't hard for him to believe then that God predetermined people to be saved and just influenced them and pushed them until they got saved. They were going to get saved. Now, he wasn't quite as far as Calvin, but close, okay? So, now back to Calvin. Um, I think I mentioned last week, and I don't want to spend too much time because I do want to make a little bit of ground here, um, that um, Calvin did not come up with what we call, what we use today to describe the five points of Calvinism, the, the word tulip, um, he didn't come up with that. His son-in-law, Theodore Beza, B-E-Z-A, inherited the movement, um, the Reformed theology and Reformed church movement at the death of his father-in-law, Calvin. Okay? Um, but Tulip, <clears throat> and then we'll, I'll explain a few things about it. Tulip is total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Okay? Now, total depravity. You are such worthless scum. Okay? Every one of you. That you have no, you don't even have the capacity to respond to God. If, I mean, you're so bad and so down in the, the bottom of the swamp that uh, salvation is, and here's a word, you don't have to memorize this, but salvation is, is monergism or monergistic, means solely of God. We believe, I don't have any question, the Bible teaches Salvation is synergistic, S-Y-N. That's human divine cooperation. Now, the human cooperation is only enabled by the grace of God. So salvation is still of God. But he sovereignly gives me grace enough to recognize truth, recognize and hear his voice, see my own heart, sense shame and guilt and so forth. And to exercise my will to respond to his offer of salvation. Now, um, Calvin and um, my, one of my theology professors, church history professor, used to always say, Beza out Calvin to Calvin. And I think to a bit of a degree, he probably did. That always happens, or often happens. The second generation systematizes and maybe tries to kind of clear up and so forth and more rigidly state the first generation's beliefs and in the course they probably go farther than the originator would have gone okay now um, but Calvin was pretty hard um, total depravity you're so wicked um, and by the way that not to get too far into the weeds here, um, Calvin only believed in what he called common grace. Common grace 
was a grace that kept depraved human beings from clawing each other's eyes out and stabbing each other to death so you could at least have somewhat civil, uh, somewhat of a civil society, okay? But the, the real clear distinction here, the grace that God gives that Calvin called common grace is not meant to also draw people to Jesus. It is only meant as a curb on their depravity. That's it. It's not also tugging at their hearts to come to Jesus. Okay? That is called prevenient grace or preventing grace. The Catholics believe that. Methodism believed in it. It's biblical. Um, and I'll, t I'll explain it in a second. Well, except say that prevenient grace not only inhibits the depraved heart, but it also is God's drawing of us and his conviction exactly like the Garden of Eden. One, he went after them. They never sought him. Humans don't seek God first. He seeks them first. And he struck out after Adam and Eve and he came to their place and he called to them and he said, what'd you guys do? Um, they knew whose voice it was. They felt shame, which is a product of prevenient grace. It convicts our hearts. We know we don't measure up to God. We're afraid of him. They made fig leaf aprons, cover their nakedness, and headed for the biggest tree they could find. That is prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before. That's what the word preventing or prevenient grace means. Um, wonderful doctrine. Tremendous doctrine. Um, Calvin denied it. There is no prevenient grace because except for the elect. And the elect are drawn by irresistible grace. They can't resist it. They will be converted. I don't care if it's kicking and screaming. They will be converted. And they will go to heaven. Now, tulip, total depravity. The you is necessary. Very logical. Dead wrong. But the whole thing is really logical. Total depravity, you're so bad off, you can't respond to God. You, then, is perfect sense, unconditional election. God has to elect you to be saved, or he elects, as Calvin taught, double predestination. Um, he, he also specifically elects others to damnation. Okay? Later Calvinists, knowing that that was just absolute nuts, played head games in saying that God just didn't choose everybody. Okay? Don't give me that. If I pick Claire before Adam and Eve to be saved and I don't pick anybody else, I just pick Jim and Mel and Mike to go to hell. Don't try to slither out of that. That's exactly what I did. It's double predestination. But it's an unsellable product, so they've tried to gussy it up and, you know, frosting on it so it doesn't look so bad. The L is even worse of Tulip, and it's probably one of the... It, I, I think I can honestly say it was the first gagging 
point where other Protestants just, their gag reflex kicked in and they couldn't buy it. L is limited atonement. Now I think, of course, I am not Calvinist. I don't know if anybody's picked that up yet. I think it's pure, boiled, concentrated blasphemy, limited atonement, that doctrine. But that doctrine is, since Claire is the only one in this room chosen to go to heaven, Beth, Jesus didn't die for you. Philip, he didn't die for you. Audrey didn't die for you. Tom, he didn't die for you. Why spill blood for people that he's chosen to damn? So he only died on the cross for Claire. Now, I, I can't even dignify that. Kind of a miserable doctrine. Um, and it was tough even for Calvinists, you know, to swallow, okay? Um, the I is irresistible grace. If you've been picked and God, Jesus died for you and nobody else, are you going to resist the tugging of God to get saved? Of course not. He's sovereign. He says you're going to get saved. You're getting saved. P, perseverance of the saints, which is eternal security, meaning you can never fall from salvation because you've been unconditionally elected. Jesus died for you. You're irresistibly saved. There's no way in the world you can backslide and lose your relationship with God and walk away from your faith. Okay? Now, that is still around. And um, in fact, I got a little theory here. If you look back through history, even you look back through the last 200 years, or so 250 years of evangelicalism, you know, Christianity and Western civilization, um, there is always, there, there seems to be um, an up and down um, pattern with that's called hyper Calvinism or f uh, lesser, you know, kind of a term five pointers because there's five points. There is there'll be a revival of five point ism and then kind of a slump and then it'll come back and then it's kind of a slump. I think there's a reason for that. Um, <coughs> And let me try to explain it this way. Much of current Calvinism everywhere, and but just say here in the United States, is what we would kind of nickname one-point Calvinism, not five-pointers. Because now here's what one-pointers do. Let me give you an illustration. You ever heard of John Piper? Anybody ever heard of John Piper? Okay, Piper's a five-pointer. John MacArthur is a rabbit frothing at the mouth. Five-pointer. Predestination, whole business. Okay. Um, but they are, while they have made a resurgence, say since the 70s, um, they're still not the majority of Calvinists. Calvinists are mo more of them are one pointers. Now, here's what a one pointer is they rightly deny predestination, well, they rightly deny 
total depravity, that we're such scum, they believe Jesus draws everybody. Okay? Yes, we're depraved, but we're not so depraved we can't respond to God. Okay? Two, they flatly reject unconditional election or predestination. They really reject the L, limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the ones chosen to go to heaven and the rest, he didn't even die for them. Why, why waste your blood? Um, they really reject that. They also totally reject I, irresistible grace. But SEAL Team 6 couldn't get their fingers unwrapped around the P, perseverance of the saints, eternal security. You got a free will till you choose Jesus, then you ain't got one no more, basically. I don't care what you do. Well, if you do enough bad stuff, then you weren't saved in the first place, which sometimes is true, but not always. The Bible's got people that backslid, fell away, recanted their faith, and there's hundreds of warnings not to do that, not to give way, not to lose heart, not to turn back to as a sow to her wallowing and a dog to its vomit. Jesus said, if you are enlightened and you turn back, that darkness is greater than the light you ever had in the first place. You're worse off. Peter said the same thing. The, the notion that once you're saved, no matter what you do, you will still go to heaven. There's a, the, the, an extreme case. A guy by the name of John R. Rice, and he, I think he died in the 60s. But he was big in the fundamentalist years in America from, you know, 1900 to 1950 or whatever. And he had a magazine that went all over everywhere. It's called The Sword of the Lord, okay? I've read stuff from it. This is a direct quote, as close, I mean, it's virtually verbatim, okay? When Jesus, when the trump sounds and the uh, believers go to heaven, out of, I am not making this up, out of the bars and the brothels and named other, you know, will go the saints of God. Um, I can't dignify that with even talking to somebody like that. Also, I read this. Once I'm saved, this is also a quote, I can stand in the road and shake my fist at God and curse him to his face and throw rocks at heaven. And when the trump sounds, I'll go to be with Jesus because I was saved back here okay another fairly common belief is that if you are bad enough as a quote Christian if you're bad enough that you bring enough reproach on God I'm not making this up okay God will just have to kill you and take you to heaven early because you're doing such damage to his. That's insane. That is insane. Okay. Um, let me just 
throw this out to you. Um, I try to control myself when it comes to Calvinism, but um, the main, one of the reasons, seriously, that I despise it with just a vengeance is where it came from. Calvinism's in the Bible. In fact, there's a lesson given on it. It's in Genesis 3. When the serpent told Eve, a child of God, that she could disobey God, but she wouldn't die for it. God didn't mean it when he said, the soul that sins, you'll die. That's where that doctrine came from. That's why I hate it. And it has destroyed the evangelical landscape in the United States because we've got all these kind, we've got all these people that are professing to be Christians but live just like the devil. Um, and what a reproach that is on the atonement of Jesus and his ability to redeem us through and through. Um, so I, I think that's one of the worst doctrines um, ever. Um, now, <clears throat> quick questions so far. <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll throw this out just quickly. The, from Switzerland, um, Calvin's writings, um, Calvin, now Luther, of course, is still, Luther and Lutheranism is still going strong, and it dominated Germany. Um, but Calvinism, as well as Lutheranism, really spread. Um, Calvinism spread into Holland heavily, um, spread to some degree into France, but France stayed pretty much Catholic. And you ever heard of the term of the word Huguenots? The Huguenots were French Protestants, and enough of France stayed Catholic that um, they ran Huguenots out. They persecuted them terribly, uh, and most of them fled. And France, technically, I, I, in history books, it'll say French Reformation, but they really hardly had a Reformation. They stayed dead Catholic till today. Um, there was quite a Reformation, we could call it, um, in Holland, the Dutch Reformation. And um, the, Dutch <coughs> the Dutch Reformation is where um, the, whole, the whole country of Holland became strongly um, Calvinin, Calvinist. By the way, one point Calvinism, one point Calvinism, I don't know when you could say it showed up, but it, every, Calvinism was five-point Calvinism clear for centuries. Um, it probably wasn't until maybe the 1800s, I don't know, that one-point Calvinism kind of came around because um, it's more palatable. Jesus died for everybody. He draws everybody. You're not you can respond to God. Um, and so um, when I say Calvinism back here, 
It's nothing but five point. Okay. Um, heavy into Holland. This, the state or, you know, the, the government, the parliament or whatever you had, formally adopted. And the parliament in Holland even wrote out some um, statements of faith that are still in use today. Um, there's, a, there's several of them. But that's how, again, involved the state was with church. But there happened a situation. Uh, Calvin's dead. His son-in-law, Beza, had kind of systematized Calvinism into a rigid box. And some Calvinists were not happy with it. They felt like he went further than Calvin went. Calvin was contradictory to himself in some good ways. Um, Calvin taught you got to live a holy life. I, I would say this. Um, he was contradictory, even with himself. Um, but he taught that Christians don't, don't go back to a life of disobeying God. I mean, we're to be holy, we're to bring forth fruits. Works don't save us, but works are a product of being converted. And, you know, we walk by faith and so forth. Yet turn right around and say, the, no matter what the elect, they will be saved. So, um, but some other Calvinists began to look at Calvin and say, Batesa went a little bit too far. I'm not sure I buy all the things he said about his father-in-law. And so in Holland, um, a leading leading scholar, professor at uh, University of Leiden, James or Jacob Arminius, okay? Um, he would have been the leading Calvinist professor. I can't remember the name of the guy. There was a little group of other professors that started picking at Calvin and started raising questions. I'm not sure I'd buy this. And part of it was over, the, well, main, not part of it. The whole thing initially was over what's called superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. Everyone here heard that, heard, has heard of that, knows completely about it, and cares, <laughs> okay? Superlapsarianism is that God chose before he even made the world Lapse is the word for fall away, the fall, okay? That God chose before he even made the world and before there was Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve fell before any of that. Seeing down through history, he knew who he'd make and he decided then before there was a fall, he's saved, she's going to hell, okay? Infralapsarians had a couple of watts of sense enough to say that makes God responsible for the fall for goodness sakes it makes him responsible for the very origins of sin Calvin and Bates still remained superlapsarians okay but more people kind of tended towards after the fall after Adam and Eve sinned then God decided here's how I'm going to save the human race uh, you know pick some out of it but he didn't do it before the fall. He did it after the fall. Okay. Well, in Holland then, Jacob Arminius was assigned 
to defend the faith because that was the official faith of Holland. And so these other professors that were questioning not just supra, infra, but predestination at all. They said, we got questions about it, biblically. So Arminius was assigned to refute them. He spent two years at least researching what they were saying, researching the Bible, researching Calvinists, and he came out agreeing with the guys that were disagreeing with Calvinism. Okay? From that day to this, people who um, believe in free will, prevenient grace, the um, peril of backsliding, and so forth, are called Armenians. Now, it's not Armenians. I've heard people say, you know, these Armenians, those are Turkish people, okay? It's not E, it's I. Arminianism. I am an Armenian. Plan to be so till whenever I leave this earth, okay? Um, and probably the, the greatest surge of Arminianism was in the English Reformation and specifically John Wesley and the Methodist movement. Um, and th- that would be the, the, the premier, I guess you'd say, Arminian movement. There are some Arminian Calvinists, if you can believe that. Um, they're small little groups, but there's a little, anybody ever heard of the denomination called Free Will Baptists? Okay, they're Arminian Calvinists. I don't know how that works. Um, but, and then there are some people, I don't really think this is a possibility myself, but there, I hear people refer to groups, you've heard of the Evangelical Free, most of us, probably. A lot of people will refer to them, their doctrinally, as, well, they're Calminians. Okay. Well, n- there is no such thing <laughs> in my book. Um, the east, east, west, west, and ever the twain shall meet as far as Calvinism and true Calvinism, true Arminianism. But anyway, um, so one last thing that I will just say and then we'll go. Um, we're going to look at Arminius and the Dutch situation um, and how he, re- he had his own five points. It didn't spell a word, tulip, but he had a response to each of those, um, which is Arminian theology. And Arminianism, Calvinism led in the United States, Puritans, so forth, when they first came here. But Arminianism, when the Methodists hit America, which was in the 1760s, um, when Methodism hit America, um, uh, Arminianism, which is what the Methodists were, just took off like a prairie fire. And by the time you get to 1850, one-third of every American who had anything to do with church was a Methodist. Okay? Now, I think I wrote a brilliant paper in seminary. Okay? It's, I'm sure it's published around the world. Um, I think the culture 
of America in its beginnings was perfectly suited not for a fatalistic, deterministic doctrine of Calvinism that no matter what you do, you're either saved or you're not saved, nothing you can do about it, so just don't worry about it. Um, America was especially suited because America was innovative. We're going over that next mountain. We're going to find out what's over that ridge. And a doctrine that said you got a free will, you can cooperate with God or you not cooperate with him or whatever, fit better. And I, my theory is that's, that's why it was fertile soil in America for a doctrine that wasn't a iron-fisted God who made all the decisions before you were even born. And it, so, anyway, um, we got to quit. So we'll start, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up with the Dutch uh, Reformation. <clears throat> and then we'll move to the Scottish Reformation. Presbyterians, John Knox, um, some tremendous uh, things there, okay? All right. Father in heaven, dismiss us, we pray, tonight. Keep us safe as we go, and we pray that for all the requests, all the issues that dear people in our congregation are dealing with, illness, death, Paul's funeral, Paul Anderson's funeral this Saturday, Lord, in just in the life of our church, I pray that you would minister your, your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.